I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. In this episode, My Dad Survived the Holocaust, a story of faith, strength, and courage. We will be speaking with David Fogel about the life of his father, Eugene. Born in Satu Mare, Romania in 1926, one of 11 children of Shimon and Matul Fogel, Eugene was raised in a religious Jewish home. Eugene had completed his schooling and had begun working when, in 1944, the Nazis entered Satu Mare and Eugene's life was changed forever. Eugene's son, David, will share stories about his father's life and how his faith and personal strength helped him survive one of the most horrific periods in human history. I'd now like to welcome David Fogel to our show. Welcome, David. Hi, James. Good to be here. David, I've been very much looking forward to speaking with you and hearing the amazing story about your dad, Eugene Fogel, and his experiences before, during, and after the Holocaust during World War II. So I really, really am glad to have you on the show. I'm glad to be here, and and thanks for doing this. It's real important that this story is out there. I agree 100%. David, I'd like to start off by asking you, where was your dad, where and when was your dad born, and what were his earliest experiences growing up and his family roots? What were they? Dad was born in a little town called Satu Mare, Romania on May 8th, 1926, a European-based family. Back then, Romania and Hungary were exchanging territories. Dad always considered himself Hungarian. It was his main language, besides some Yiddish and Hebrew growing up, and always considered himself a hunk or Hungarian. And always, I remember later on being with him wherever it was in the city or anywhere, he would hear uh, people talking Hungarian and he would just turn around and glow. A gleam would come off his face and he would dive right into the conversation because that that was his roots. Um, Family was very poor, very, very religious. Everything centered around the home, the synagogue, the religion. Dad was the 10th of 11 children. So it was a big brood. I think grandma lost a couple in childbirth, but I remember hearing stories about 15 or 16 kids at one point. But I know in this context, he was the 10th of 11. I actually have a picture of, I think, 10 or 11 kids surrounding the grandparents. But again, very poor, very European-based, very religious family. Wow, that's amazing to hear that many children. And even if you made a good salary, it had to go pretty far, didn't it? My grandfather was a Hayda teacher, which is a re- very religious school, to another word for school. And my great-grandfather was a rabbi. They were very poor. You know, just picture a little house with a bathroom outside. It was an outhouse. So 1926, right, there was obviously bathrooms around, but they were just that poor. So everything was about the home and about the religion. He, Dad went to yeshiva for many, many years up until about 16, and then went off to work. He did. Was he completed with school? Did his dad pull him out of school? What happened? Um, Well, there was a law in Romania that children had to attend for some period of time, some public school. So my grandfather had to pull my dad out of yeshiva and put him in Romanian public school. He stayed in that the required amount of time up until he was 16, and then that was it. Then he went off to work and contribute to the home. You know, with no choice in that matter. Gotcha. Now, if I'm doing my math correctly, your dad was born in 26. So when he was 16, it's 1942. So war has been raging in Europe now for three years, since 1939. And there was obviously a lot of military actions and turmoil prior to that as well. But war was officially declared in 1939. What did your dad hear? What did he know about what was going on with Nazi Germany? It's a great question. My dad would tell me he never heard the term Nazis. Not until he was in the camps did he hear the term Nazis. 
they were very isolated. There was no radio, there was no television. They did have a newspaper, but it was a Yiddish newspaper. There was very little written about what was going on. So dad tells the story that he didn't know until the day they came, the Nazis came into Satomare to deport him. He did not know that this existed. Obviously knew there was a war going on, but to the extent of concentration camps or the murder and extermination of the Jewish people never entered their minds. And thinking about it, where would they go? Even if they did know, pack your bags and go. You didn't have money, didn't have a family, you couldn't escape. I remember having conversations with them. Maybe something would have been different, but where would they go? Where would they run to? So they, they were pretty, pretty naive as to what was going on around them. You know, it's easy to say, oh, you saw danger coming. Let's pack up our 10 children, leave our home and have no money and just flee. Where do you go? What do you do? This is your home. This is where you grew up. This is where generations lived. It's easy to say, oh, you should have fled. Right. That's a lot harder you know, to do than, than it is to just say it, right? Absolutely. It's not like you take your phone and you type in United Airlines and I want to book a flight somewhere, you know, it's, it didn't exist. So their faith, their town, their family all revolved. And maybe there was just hope that if there was something bad going on, it would never reach them. But to the extent that did befall them, they had no knowledge it was coming. So David, when did your dad first know? Something bad was really going to be happening to him and his family. Basically, in early 1944, Nazis marched into Satomari, Romania, dad's town. It was right around Passover, so early May of 1944. And when they marched in, they rounded up everybody. So that was the first instance when the Nazis came in and said, pack your bags, get out, we're relocating you, is the first time dad had knowledge that they were in trouble. They had no knowledge that it would be this bad before that. So when they had them get out, where did they take them? Where did they send them? They forced my dad's family and everybody in the town to a ghetto to round them up. It was a place to keep everybody before they transported them. It was a gated ghetto. You couldn't come and go freely. And at that point, I remember dad telling me, they considered themselves prisoners because they didn't have anywhere to go. They didn't know where to go. They questioned why this was happening to them, and they just had no answers. The ghetto was extremely cramped. Four people slept in the same bed for three to four weeks, and he was there about a month. That's it. The treatment was extremely bad, something he had never experienced. So imagine going from your life revolving around the home, synagogue, family, and school. And it was all about the Torah and and becoming learned in the family and moving on. And dad just started to work. He was just getting himself situated as learning a little bit about the world, but in their small little town, to being a prisoner, being in a ghetto, little to eat, just being really, really mistreated. There were people outside the ghetto that did help them. I know my dad would tell his older brother and sister found some sympathetic people, some sympathetic guards that were able to smuggle in food because the level of of food they were receiving um, was not much to sustain them on. So there were a few sympathizers, but overall it was a really, really atrocious experience that he had never, ever dreamed could happen. And your dad and his family were people who were used to living on very little. So for them to see this terrible contrast to that must have meant that these conditions were appalling. Absolutely. Absolutely appalling. You know, for him to specifically tell me they slept four to a bed, I can't imagine it was much better. Maybe they slept two to a bed, you know, in their poor conditions or or whatever. But 
it was pretty ugly. And they each were allowed one little suitcase out of their house, you know, and he was a teenager. He was the youngest of the group. It was pretty tough because his parents were on the older side. So managing to take care of them, but yet surviving themselves was just an unbelievable experience. When they were in the ghettos, were they just another part of a city or a local town or village that the Nazis sort of cordoned off and just said, this is where everybody goes? Exactly, Jimmy. It was part of a little town. They sectioned off a town that was logistically advantageous to them, where they can get the trains in and out, bring the people in, corral them, and then get the trains, the cattle cars to come in or close to the ghetto so they could just transport them from the ghetto to the cattle cars, from the cattle cars to the concentration camps. Gotcha. Now, you tell about the cattle cars and moving them to the concentration camps later, but while they're in the ghetto, is your dad together with his family still? He is. They're together in the ghetto up until and in the cattle cars entirely with the family. So they were clinging to each other, right? It was all about the family, the inner strength, the faith that if they stay together and they believe they'll come through this okay is what sustained him during that four-week period in the ghetto. So they still had family around to support each other. But what happened then after he was taken from the ghetto? What happened? So they were in the ghetto for about three to four weeks. And just before the next Jewish holiday, Shavuot, which is the revelation of the Torah, when they received the Torah on Mount Sinai, And it's interesting how dad would tell the story and everything surrounded a Jewish holiday. They came on Passover. They put me in to the ghetto. They took me out of the ghetto on Shavuot. So the dad, it was, you could tell, and even in storytelling, it's all about his religion and his faith. And they put 20,000 Jews on Shavuot on cattle car transport trains, shipping them off to different various concentration camps. Ten brothers and sisters went into the concentration camp. One brother, before they came to the ghetto, I think this is important to know, one brother, before they came to deport them out of their town in Satomari to the ghetto, one brother left and went to fight with the army, volunteered in the army. I think the story goes, this brother did not get along too well with the father. He didn't adhere to the father's strict religious demands in the house. So he rebelled and he went off to live his own life and then enlisted in in the army. So he did not get deported into the concentration camps. But 10 brothers and sisters went into the concentration camps. Of those 10 brothers and sisters, mother, father, aunts, uncles, grandparents, three survived. How awful. Yep. Three children survived. Your dad being one of them. Yep, my dad being one. Did your dad ever say what the conditions were like on those cattle cars? Yes, yeah, he did. It was worse than the ghettos. So every step of the way, life was getting worse for him. Something he never imagined. Very cramped, difficult to breathe, difficult to go to the bathroom. It was a full day where he was on this transport, this cattle car. And based on the stories and the readings and the, and the research I've done, one day is not bad. But it was one day with no food, no bathrooms, no air. And um, after one day, he arrived in Auschwitz, where he was separated from his family. So at that point, from getting off the cattle cars in Auschwitz, from the point of taking them from their home to the ghetto, to the cattle cars, they were all together. Once they got off the cattle cars, they were separated. Can you tell us about how they would separate people? So the, the separation process, for as much as I know from my research and a little bit told me is who can work, who, who the Nazis felt would be able to work, and those who they deemed could not work, were not useful, was sent directly to the gas chambers. And 
your dad being, what was he, 18 at this time in 1944? Yeah, so he was just turning 18 years old. So he was a young, strong guy. Correct. Little, little guy. <laughs> dad was in heels. He was five foot five and 150 pounds. So he was a small guy, but he was a strong little man. So did your dad ever see his parents again? No, never saw his parents at all. He was separated from them at that point in time. He managed to stay with one older brother during this period. So in the separation, my guess is they felt these two young men could work. At that point, sisters, mothers, grandparents, everybody else went their own way. And interesting, he, was, he stayed there two days before being marched to the main camp, Auschwitz-Birkenau, which is in Krakow, Poland. And my wife and I had a chance to, we went traveling in Europe and we went to, to Germany and we went to Poland. And I actually wore Auschwitz. And in the tour, my wife made sure she wrote ahead to a tour guide who she informed about the timeline and my dad's plight. And so he made sure during the walk around Auschwitz, he was showing me this is where in May of 1944, the Hungarian Jews were being brought in. And here are where the barracks used to be because they were destroyed. Um, and here's where he would have went since he survived before being transported to a work camp. And here's where your family who didn't survive were marched to the crematoriums, the gas chambers, and then the crematoriums. So a very, very humbling experience to walk through the gates of Auschwitz and just follow that cattle car, the train tracks, and see all of that, just to see what my father saw for a period of time. What were you feeling when you when you walked those same steps that your ancestors, your father's family walked to their death? I think for me, because I've been involved in learning about this from a very, very early age, it was part of my life. What it brought home is the reality. It wasn't just a story or it just wasn't a number on his arm. Um, it was reality. You could touch the gates. You know, Arbeit macht frei, right on top of the gates, which translates to work makes you free. And just walked those halls and those buildings. It was real. It did exist. And at the same time, it was so chilling that human beings could do that to other human beings, to have a defined plan mapped out how to exterminate a race of people. It was just humbling. My knees were a little soft, choked up for a number of hours walking Auschwitz. David, I just can't imagine how you must have felt. That must have been so um, emotional for you. And just to, to think that you're standing in the same place your dad was standing and just getting a feel for what it was that must have been going through his mind at that time. It must have been really something else. It was, it was, and it's not for everybody. You know, I can't recommend it, but I think it's important, Jewish, non-Jewish, whatever, for, for people to understand that this did happen. And as a human race, we can never let this happen again. Getting physically and emotionally choked up. <clears throat> let me get my voice back here. Sorry. David, could you go on to tell us what your dad related to you regarding his experience while in Auschwitz? Absolutely. He was in the main camp for two days and then was assigned to a work camp called Bunamanowitz, where he was enslaved and he went to work. The Nazis made a deal with this German company, IG Farben Company, also in Poland. And he knew at that point, this is where he started to say his faith and his strength is the way he'll get through this, however long it'll be. If they're putting me to work, they need me. As long as they need me, I can't survive. If they don't need me, I won't survive. So he put that together. It was there in Auschwitz, Bunamanowitz, where his number was tattooed to his arm, A7888, 
was a number that was put on his arm at 18 and was there until the day he died. He witnessed many, many atrocities, right? But he knew to survive. He needed to cling to his brother. He needed to have faith and have strength and do what he's asked to take one day at a time and try to survive each instant, each moment, everything that was thrown at him, do what he had to do to survive. David, did your dad mention what kind of work he had to do? He did. He was laying cables in the ground. So he was lifting cables and putting cables in the ground, digging the trenches and, and lifting the cables and putting them in the ground. Somebody else would be doing whatever they had to do to, to attach them. But it, it was very, very manual, digging, carrying, moving things around. They were building things. Um, IG Farben was expanding. And my dad was free labor. Just because your dad was free labor and maybe he was a really good worker, but because of that, they did not feel obligated to feed him well either, right? That's correct. Food in, in the various camps he was in was just one of a couple to come. Black coffee in the morning, a little clear broth, maybe with a vegetable at the bottom of it. Once in a while, a piece of black bread, but very infrequently. And that was breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Some soup, a vegetable, a radish, a piece of carrot, a cabbage, a cup of coffee, and once in a while, a piece of bread. David, you and I have both been 18-year-old boys, and we are bottomless pits. And add to that working doing heavy, hard work all day, he would normally be, I would think, ravenously hungry. And he was getting little broth soup and black coffee, maybe with a vegetable at the bottom of the broth. How did he function? I think the human body is a remarkable thing, Jim. I think you, between your, your mind, your heart, and your body, if you have to survive, you do what you have to survive. I agree. You know, you and I and our kids probably, whatever was in the refrigerator, a cold slice of pizza in the middle of the night, you go for a cold slice of pizza. But I don't think he ever grew up that way. But to go from whatever he was used to, to clear broth and black coffee was a monster change. And I think everything comes down to survival. And you teach your, your body, your mind, your heart teaches you how to adjust to survive. Now, you mentioned your dad saw a lot of atrocities. Did he mention any specifics uh, with regard to times where he felt he might be at the brink of being killed? I do recall a story after his time in Bonamanowitz in early 1945, where the Russian army was getting closer and closer and the Nazis needed to evacuate the camp. My dad took part in what is now called the Death March. It was a 50-kilometer march from Bunomanowitz to another called Glywitz. Frigid, cold temperatures, deep snow. Thousands of people died in that march. And dad would tell stories that, and they were marching in horrendous shoes, no real coats, and just their prisoner uniforms, their striped uniforms. But if you would fall out of line, you would be shot. If you asked a question, you would be shot. The guards were not sympathetic. If you fell down and the guards didn't feel like shooting you and you couldn't move, you just lied there and died and froze to death. So dad said that was the worst atrocities he saw. I think in some respect, and I hate to use this word, he was lucky. Lucky to have the ability to work every day and take him away from the gas chambers, the crematoriums, the atrocities of Auschwitz. And he was able to work every day, get back to his bunk and just repeat the same thing. So to him, the visualization of atrocities came on that death march of 50 kilometers to Gleiwitz. And to think that your dad was probably getting weaker and getting thinner and exhausted from working and marching and to also be worried that 
if you fainted or you were just too weak to go on or too hungry to move that you were done. So he must have had to really lean on some real inner strength and his faith to get through that march. Absolutely. And, and I think a big part, I know a big part he would say is having his brother with him, the two of them leaning on each other every step of the way, having a, a familiar face, pulling each other when one would feel that they couldn't make it, the other one would pull them through. And I think that was a tremendous advantage that helped him find the strength, continue the faith to, to make it to the next day. Tell us about what happened to your dad once he completed that 50-kilometer march. So after the march and he got to Glywitz, he, he wasn't there a long time. He was put on another cattle car and taken to Buchenwald concentration camp in Germany. So remember, it's January, February of 45, wars coming to an end. He was moved to Buchenwald. I clearly don't know why he went to Buchenwald, but I think maybe there was some hope that they would be able to continue the extermination of the Jews or working the Jews, but he was sent to his third or fourth concentration camp at this point. And again, with his brother, every step of the way, giving themselves each other hope, hope that they would get through this. But the sad part of this, dad was with his brother through all of these concentration camps up until Buchenwald, where they remained together for the entire duration. And just before liberation, the night before liberation, dad and his brother went to sleep in these barracks. Dad woke up in the morning and the brother was gone. And the brother was taken and killed by the Nazis the day before liberation. So he missed it by one day. Oh, how awful. And was his brother sick or was he just, he'd worn out his usefulness, do you think? You know, I, I don't even want to speculate. I don't know. I don't know if he was weak. I just always wondered. And I, this is a, Part of my conversations with my father, where I didn't want to go into this, you made it this far with him and you reached, you were able to survive by leaning on each other. And that, that crutch was gone. What did you feel? You know, asking my dad, what did you feel? I mean, I know he was distraught, but he was also liberated. So he woke up in the morning, brother was gone. The next day he's liberated. So this wave of emotion to lose the strength that has kept you alive or helped you keep you alive for the last year or so is now gone. And the next day you're free. And to know your brother missed it by one day, just, just a horrendous, horrendous thing to have to live with. What's so extra terrible about this whole thing. It's so horrific, but it's particularly horrific to think that despite the fact that Germany was clearly being defeated and were at, at the end of their rope, they were basically being pushed all the way back into Berlin, that they continued on with their mission to exterminate the Jews. Absolutely. It, it, is, it is unbelievable. I'll tell you a little uh, sidebar story. So when my wife and I traveled to Europe on our trip to Poland, we also were in Berlin. Our first stop was Germany and Berlin. And we went to, a tour guide took us to a train station where they were deporting Jews. And to memorialize this train station, it's not used anymore, there were plaques at different areas on the platform. And the first plaque would, I don't remember the exact date, but it was early in the war, 19, early 1941, 42. And it told you the number of Jews that were transported by cattle car at this platform on this date. And as you walk the platform, the dates increased, got later and later, and the number of Jews being deported got more and more. And I worked my way all the way around to the final platform, which was somewhere in early 1945. And the number, I think I recall, was still like 1,700 Jews. So they were still having this push at the latest stages in the war to see if they could still carry out this master plan of extermination. 
even in the face of defeat. Pure evil. Pure evil. David, tell us about liberation. What did your dad tell you about that day, other than waking up and seeing that his brother was no longer there, which was awful for him. But what was it like? Who liberated the camp? American soldiers is a story he tells that he remembers seeing. He remembers waking up and seeing the soldiers, the Nazis fleeing or laying down their weapons and lying down and the American soldiers coming in. The skeletal bodies walking around like ghosts, not knowing which way to turn, right or left. And my dad remembers the American soldiers were like shocked. So just like my father, who had no idea, I am sure these American soldiers could not even comprehend in their wildest dreams what they were going to find, what they were going to walk into and find that people could look like this. And they realized that these people were dying of malnutrition, that they were dropping like flies and they needed to do something. And what American soldiers did is try to feed them as quickly as possible. So they went into the stalls and, and started killing the animals and cooking food and making a goulash. And my father used to say, he used to love his goulash. And they would make these stews, these goulash. And something inside my father said, you know, I don't think I can eat that. I've been living on clear broth and a vegetable and some coffee and some bread for a year now. I can't digest. I can't imagine I'll be able to have a piece of meat, your fatty meat. And he ran to the stables where the Nazis kept the horses and the other animals and found the bin where all the crackers were. And that's what he started eating. And he did all of that to line his stomach. And when he went out, he saw how many of the prisoners were getting sick from eating these fatty meats. Several died, several were hospitalized and so on. So that had the wherewithal to not consume right away this goulash, but to do something to at least line his stomach so he would not just get sick from this. And the American soldiers were doing whatever they could to feed these people. They had no knowledge. And it was just, just absolutely horrific. So he was, besides being unbelievably overjoyed, he was also a bit at a loss. What now? Brother died, has no idea at this point where any of his family were, right? They were separated in Auschwitz and what's next for him. So he has no idea. And that really, really kind of defines where he goes next and what happens after liberation. David, your dad's been liberated. What happens next? You said, obviously, it's a big transition. This is where he's been working and just surviving for all that time. What happened when the Americans came in and liberated him? So I don't know the step-by-step where he went right after liberation or what the, the process was. But once he was liberated, at some point after liberation, very shortly, he was given a choice of going several places, including returning to Satamare. He didn't want to go home. I don't know why, because he really didn't know what was what was left there or who was alive or who from his family, if they survived, would they go home? But dad didn't want to go home. And he chose to go to France. And there was a, a book about the orphans of Buchenwald. And dad's in that book. They were taken by this rabbi, a group of kids taken to live in an old chateau in a town called Taverny, just outside of Paris. And it, it was converted into a boy's home by the French relief organization. And that's where he went to, um, to start life all over again. Interesting, in Taverny, in this chateau, my dad became friends with Eli Wiesel, the very famous author. Eli Wiesel, also a Hungarian, was transported right around all the readings I've done, right around the same days as my dad. I think their numbers on their arms were a couple of hundred apart. 
and Eli was taken from Budapest and taken from Hungary, Budapest into Auschwitz. I, I don't know where dad's transport. I know he was in the, the ghetto. I don't know if the ghetto took him to Budapest and then he got on the main transport. Not sure, but he did meet Eli Wiesel in, in Taverny in the boys' home, and they remained friends for many, many years, seeing each other occasionally in America at different Holocaust remembrance functions. David, was Taverny a good experience for your dad? It was. It was a great experience. He learned about life, and he learned about life outside of his little home in Satomare and his family. He learned about people and they were also allowed to exercise. And I have pictures of dad exercising with the other boys and many, many friends and maybe even taking trips into Paris. So he did enjoy life and learn to do other things than have been previously at things he previously had done in Satomare. David, while your dad was in Taverny, did he begin to hear any more about other members of his family and what happened to them? He did. It, it was in Taverny that the list came out. And it's there he found out that only two brothers and a sister had survived the war. So if you go back to what I previously said, one brother was in the, the army. So it's the one brother and one sister survived the concentration camps and one brother survived the army. But everybody else perished. The brother, his name was Mechel Shalom, he would die of tuberculosis in Romania. That was the, the brother that fought in the, um, the Romanian army. The other two siblings, Beryl and Funcha, they survived and they ended up going to Israel. When my dad stayed in Palestine at the time, my dad stayed in France, his brother and sister went to Israel. Have you ever been in contact with those relatives in Israel? I have. So obviously I never met any of my dad's family many, many years. And his sister and he were very close. They talked on the phone from America to Israel many times. And his sister had a chance to travel to the United States. Her husband had some business and I did get to meet her in my parents' apartment in the Bronx. And post that, my wife and I had a chance to travel to Israel twice. And the first time, and through social media, I became friends with some of my cousins. I have somewhere north of 75 cousins in Israel from this brother and sister, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. I think there's 75 of them out there. My first trip, I did get to, um, we had a get-together with family. My brother and I and my wife and my brother's wife went to Israel. It was my niece's bas mitzvah and we celebrated in Israel. And many, many of the relatives were there at, at one cousin's house and it just kept coming out. And they just come coming out of the woodwork. It was really an unbelievable experience to meet that side of the family I had never met for, you know, 40 some odd years of my life. What a blessing considering how many Cousins, though, you would have had had the Holocaust not taken place. But what a blessing that you did and you do have that many cousins from your dad's family. That's true. And dad was very, very close to that sister, as I mentioned. It's an interesting story. My aunt, my dad's sister, didn't right away, did not go back, go right to Israel. She was still in Germany. She got actually married, engaged and married in Germany post the war. And when dad found out she was alive and wanted to see her, he would sneak back and forth from France to Germany. And he didn't have the papers to do it. So he would find the train. I just marvel at his ingenuity, right? I didn't have a tremendous education. And what education he had was very religious in nature. But he figured things out. He would jump on a train from France to Germany. And as... Um, the conductor or the authorities were coming around to check papers. Dad would jump off, hide under the train. When they passed by, he would climb back on the train and head off to, to Germany. Couldn't afford to buy a ticket, but he wanted to see his sister. He, he was caught a couple of times, but did manage to see her on many, many occasions before she did catch the boat to Palestine. 
Your dad was a very resourceful young man. He had to be, right? He had to be. You have to do what you have to do and learn how to survive and become very resourceful. Now, your dad, when he was in France, did he learn any trades that would prepare him for work? He did. So there were a number, he had a couple of choices what he could do. One choice was to be a cantor. Dad had a lovely voice. He loved to sing and and the whole aspect of Judaism and religious nature really, really intrigued him. But they wanted to send him for cantorial training, but it would require some formal education. And I think he was very uncomfortable going back to school after all these years and not having a formal education. It scared him. So he chose to train as an apprentice in Paris as a handbag manufacturer, ladies' handbags. And he trained with um, a small company and then eventually apprenticed for a larger company. And I got to imagine post-war Paris becoming the hub of Europe and style and glamour, I think gave that uh, moment to, to pause and socialize and meet people. That kind of career gave him the opportunity to meet more people and to just socialize something that he had never experienced before. So now he had, he had experience, he had a trade. How long did he stay in France? What were his next steps? So he was in France from 19, June of 45 to May of 48. He found out that you could go to the United States as a student for two to three years and maybe obtain a visa to study at Yeshiva University. But there were several roadblocks along the way. First, he got sick on the boat over to America. Next, he was detained at Ellis Island for almost two weeks as he wasn't an immigrant, but rather on a student visa and he needed a relative to post a bond to say he would go back to Europe after his visa ran out. So my dad's aunt, my grandmother's sister, posted a $500 bond, and he went to live with her. He finally got to his aunt's house. When he finally went to register at Yeshiva University, he found out there were too many students, and they just wouldn't take him. So he was here in America on his visa, student visa, but they weren't going to send him back, and the Yeshiva University wasn't going to take him. So he ended up staying, and all worked out in the end. And... When your dad was in the United States, was he happy to be in the United States? Was it his kind of the best case scenario for him? Or was there some other place he may have liked to have gone? No, it really was the best place scenario. A lot of his friends from Paris and Tavernier and people he knew back there came to America. He lived in Brooklyn with his aunt and worked in New York City. So between Brooklyn and New York City, a young man earning a couple of dollars. It was a really good experience. He eventually moved out of his aunt's house and moved into an apartment building where a lot of young men in the same situation moved in. I think it was in the high 90s on Columbus Avenue in Manhattan. And they were all Jewish. So they they did observe the, the Sabbath on a regular basis and the holidays. But it was a new world for him to learn about and to grow into. Now, your dad, I understand, in the late 50s, I think it was, Mm -hmm. met your mom. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So in December um, 1957, just a few months after the Dodgers left Brooklyn, it was important for my father to always tell me the Dodgers left Brooklyn. He met my mother, Beatrice Nidich. They met at a dance and started dating. So they met in December 1957, and they were married by March 23rd, 1958. So a few short months of dating and planning a wedding. My mother used to say, when I would ask her, wow, three months, you fell in love that quickly. Well, dad was a sharp dresser and a great dancer with a good voice. And they were the same size and the same stature. They were both very short. So he, he fit all the criteria. It's a perfect match. Perfect match, yep. And then, of course, you were born not much longer afterward, right? In November of 1962. So um, both mom and dad married late, right? My mom 
was also about 31 when she got married, right around that, and had me almost 35, four years later. So back then, that was later than most people have children. Right. And you have a brother also, right? I have a younger brother, Robert, and he was born in 67. So mom was almost 40 when she had my brother. So they were in their 30s when they got married. But what a, an incredibly full life your dad had had up to that point. And Absolutely. Yeah. Now, was your mom's family, had they been in the United States for quite a while? They had. My mom's side of the family was from Russia originally, and they got here right around the end of World War One, either just before or just after World War One. Um, and they were settled here in Brooklyn for many, many years. So tell me something, David. How would you say your dad's life was impacted? The man that you knew, how was his life impacted by the experiences he had during the Holocaust? I believe that my dad's life was impacted by the, the Holocaust. It confirmed his love of Judaism and his faith, because if he was here and you asked him the question, how did you survive? It was all about having faith. And I think where many, many others lose faith, how can this happen to me? Why did God let this happen? My father went the other way. It happened, but my faith and my love of God and Judaism kept me alive. And I'm never going to walk away from that. So I think that is what his biggest takeaway and his legacy, you know, passing that on to his kids and, and the stories is what he would want us to remember, but always to have faith and believe. And that's been passed on to you. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned about your dad telling you stories, but was he always that way? Or when you were younger, did he share much or did that come later on? It's a great question. It came later on. So from an early age, dad didn't talk about it, but I really remember dad had writing on his arm. Why does my father have writing on his arm? So that was my memory as a little child. You know, I didn't know from tattoos and I really didn't know about the Holocaust, but my dad has writing on his arm. And I remember watching him with his close friends and they have writing on their arms, but some don't. Some of his friends don't. So why do some do and some don't? Later on, as I learned more and more about it, I learned about the concentration camps and the Nazis and what they did. But dad never really spoke about it. Not until I went really into high school and a teacher in high school was starting, the high school I went to in the Bronx was starting a Holocaust Memorial Museum way before the one in Washington and the one in New York City in the late 70s. And I became very involved. I volunteered to help build the center, to help raise money, to collect artifacts, books, and pictures. And the teacher, who was very close to the teacher, he knew about my dad and his friends. And he asked me to interview my dad and his friends. Came home, and I was supplied with a little cassette recorder with a microphone. And I asked my dad, and he said yes. Surprisingly, he said yes. And I interviewed him. And I interviewed half a dozen of his friends who had been there. And I donated all those cassettes to the Bronx High School of Science Holocaust Memorial Center. That's a treasure to have that information there on record for future generations to research and to learn about. I think that opened the door for my dad to tell stories. So after the movie Schindler's List, Steven Spielberg, started a project called Shoah and wanted to document all these stories of survivors that he could find. And he went around the world with professional teams interviewing survivors. And they actually came to my parents' little apartment in the Bronx, interviewed my dad. So we have my brother and I, my kids of all have a copy of this tape and the professional therapist did the interviewing. So was able to bring things out that probably were never there before. When dad retired, he helped build or start the building of a 
the Holocaust Museum in, in Washington, D.C. A friend of his from the Bronx was on the board and dad volunteered stuffing envelopes and making phone calls or whatever he did. So little by little, he got himself involved. I brought him to my son and daughter's school and sat up in front of the class on this little chair. And my dad was the same size as all the little kids. So it, it worked out perfect. And they asked him questions and he let them see the number on his arm. My cousins out in Long Island did the same thing, asked him to come out and talk to the class. And they prepared some questions for him and they he talked to the kids and whenever they wanted to know, he was willing to tell them. So I think my experience in high school and making that request of him, I think opened the door because I remember early on, my mother would say, don't ask him, don't ask him, it upsets him. Let's not ask him, let's not go there. But I felt I needed to know more. I really wanted to get involved and see what I could learn and what I could do. And maybe this is something I want to do later on. And dad opened up. He was really willing to open up about it. What a valuable thing that is for you as his son to have that window opened up. To see what he went through and what he felt. And also those very fortunate students who were able to hear firsthand what happened during the Holocaust from a perspective of a person who was very deeply involved and affected by it. Yep. I think it was something that all schools should include in their curriculum. And I hope someday, maybe that's something I would like to do. I would like to find a way to continue his story, the story of the Holocaust, to ensure that people don't forget that this can happen not only to Jewish people, to any race, that we need to be conscious of these things and do the right thing, do the right thing to all people, all races, religions, and, and not allow this to ever happen again. I agree 100%. And I think it's just so important for these stories to be told and recorded. And as we both know, the number of firsthand witnesses to the Holocaust is dwindling. And I think it's very important for families of those people and those people to uh, tell those stories and to have people like you, the, the sons or daughters, to tell the story so that others can learn. And as you said, most importantly, that this will never happen again. Because if you think it can't, that's when you get caught off guard because you have to be on uh, very much aware of some of man's inhumanity to man, as they say, and it can be absolutely abysmal throughout history. We have things like this, but David, this was, this happened between 12 and 15 years before you and I were born. Yep. And it, that's how recently it was. Right. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. And it has to be all of the museums, all of the educational material has to be continued. It has to be passed down generation to generation. Exactly. Now, David, I'm going to ask you, and this is a hard question perhaps to ask, but what do you think your dad would have wanted his legacy to be? <clears throat> I believe if he were here today, he would say he would want his legacy to be his family, his family and his faith. And the fact that he survived allowed for this beautiful family, my, my beautiful wife and kids, my brother and his wife and their kids, that's his legacy. And his faith allowed him to survive and get here and create this. And I think he would say that's his legacy to all people that we should always remember. As we just mentioned, we should always remember that this happened and it should not be forgotten. And we need to protect and ensure that this never happens again. That would be his legacy. An amazing legacy for an amazing man, David. And this has just been a, an incredible story that you have now. When did your dad pass away, David? Dad passed away in April of 2011. 2011. So he's been gone a while now. It's 10 years. And I bet it still feels like when you talk about him like this, it sort of brings him back into the room, right? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Lots of pictures of mom and dad all over the house and talking about his experience in the Holocaust. And um, I do an awful lot of reading keeps him in the forefront of my mind. It, and it's a good thing for me to do a good thing for me to remember him. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to kind of conclude with this, but you had mentioned your dad had met uh, L.E.V. Saul when he was in France, right? Correct. And L.E.V. Saul is somebody that you also were able to meet. Ellie knew your dad. So I know that on one of those occasions where you you actually were with your wife, Terry, and you met L.E.V. Saul, and Terry, being a writer, wrote about that experience. That's correct. She did. Yep. And I actually have her letter that she wrote here, and I would like to read it. Is that okay? Oh, I would love you to. Okay, here we go. My father-in-law, Eugene Fogel, was in the concentration camps during World War II. He met Elie Wiesel when they were both in the Buchenwald camp and were liberated from there together. They met up again at a boy's home in Taverny, France. Their lives took very different directions. Elie Wiesel was a man of great importance who took up the crusade of injustice. Eugene was not an educated man, but lived a good life, marrying, raising his two sons, and later enjoying his grandchildren. When Eugene knew that Ellie was speaking somewhere, he would wait outside and was always able to steal a few minutes with his now famous friend. In 1998, my husband was invited by a work friend to an affair at his father-in-law's house. We later came to find out that the father-in-law was very rich and lived in Greenwich, Connecticut. We felt a little out of place arriving at the beautiful mansion by the water. The affair was a fundraiser for JINSA, the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs. My husband and I wandered around in awe of the beautiful surroundings. We were chatting with his friend when out of the corner of my eye, I spotted Elie Wiesel. David, there's Elie Wiesel. Let's go say hi. He knows your dad, I said as I tugged at his sleeve. David looked and hesitated. He's surrounded by all those political guys and even some in uniform. Do you think it's appropriate to bother him at this time? I stood there for a thoughtful minute and then took his hand and gently steered him towards Elie Wiesel. I could tell by his pace that he was not sure of my course of action. Once we were in front of Elie Wiesel, I leaned in and said, Excuse me, Mr. Wiesel, but I believe you know my father-in-law. He turned and looked at me with the kindest eyes and excused himself from the person he had been chatting with. And who is your father-in-law? My husband found his voice and said, Eugene Fogel. Mr. Wiesel gave us a wide smile and grabbed David's hand. Of course I know. Yiddle, how is my old friend? In a room full of politicians, military men, and millionaires, he spoke to us as if we were the only people in the room. He asked about Eugene, his wife, their life in Florida. We told him about his grandchildren, my brother-in-law, and our lives. I finally looked around and saw that there were several people waiting to speak with him, including a military man with quite a few medals on his shoulder. I'm so sorry, Mr. Bezal. I see there are people waiting to speak with you. We don't want to take up any more of your time. It has been such an honor. He grabbed both of our hands and looked both of us in the face and said, no, it has been my honor. Please give my old friend my sincerest regards. I've recounted this story many times. Every time, and even as I write this, there are tears in my eyes. I know now, and I knew then, that I was in the presence of a truly great man, and I will be forever grateful for our 10-minute conversation, which I think is a wonderful letter that your wife wrote, but I think it's suffices to say that your dad was also an amazing man. And I would have been honored to have been in his presence had I met your dad. And I wish I had. I thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. And I wanted to know, is there anything, what are you, what are your immediate plans? Do you have any thoughts about how are you going to carry on bringing this information forward to the next generations? I do. As I'm approaching the next chapter of my life, 
I think what I'm, I'm going to do with all of the research and reading I've done, I think I would like to investigate the options of teaching at some level about the Holocaust, more than just obviously my father's experience, but making sure that all generations know what happened. So I think I would like to find a way to teach in schools at the college level, or maybe some podcasts, something similar to this, where I can keep this message going. It's something that is near and dear to my heart. I have a good understanding and knowledge of this, and I think it's important. I think it really makes a difference that this message stay out there. So that's my project from my father's legacy. I think that's great, David. And you tell the story with such passion and interest and you do your research. I think you're just the right person to be telling this story. I know that wherever you're going to teach or whether you produce a podcast or whatever else you do, I hope to manage a front row seat somehow to hear it. There'll always be one there for you, Jim. David, thanks again. And I hope you have a great day. Thank you, Jim, and take care. Bye-bye. So, for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.